Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val, on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, the director of the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Sir, it is a gloomy day. Oh, it's a little rainy outside today, isn't it? Oh, it's Oh, for that it would be rainy. <laughs> if, it, if it was like a gray day like this and rainy, it would be like a good contemplative fireplace moonlight sonata kind mm-hmm, of day. Mm-hmm. Today it's just gray, mm. kind of muggy, and it's like, bleh. It's not too cold, though. No. Well, that's good. Sir, you look consternated. <laughs> <laughs> ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about uh, about the relationship between... You know the the political layer of our lives and our moral layer of our lives. Oh, no wonder you're concentrated. And and have you ever you ever thought about why it is in the past that they had uh, duels? <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, Burr. You know, shoots Alexander Hamilton in a yeah. duel. That kind of thing, or a sword fight duel. You know, yeah. I have long argued that if we just decriminalized murder and brought back dueling, it would drop the murder rate. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of times, the reason that people would do dueling is for honor's sake. You know, they would say, "You've dishonored me somehow." You know, and I need to have some kind of uh, way to regain my my honor. In some ways, it's an essentially cultural act. It's like there's no political. I mean, you know, you can use it for political purposes. What I mean is that when you do that. You're not trying to, like, vote somebody out of office or you don't care what party they're a part of. You're just like, this is a personal matter of honor. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And yet our... Our legal system, I think, it makes it, uh, you know, makes it impossible now. You can't actually do uh, dueling anymore, I don't think, can you? Not in Tennessee, anyway. anyway. We can have another (laughs) podcast arguing whether that was a good idea or a bad idea. Well, I've just been thinking about that. I mean, you say say maybe we'd have fewer murders. Part of the reason that, that you, you know, these drug gangs murder each other is because of dishonor. Yeah. Right. They'll say, or you tried to steal from me, or you tried to encroach on my territory, or whatever nonsense. Yeah. My honor is being uh, 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 indicted somehow. I need to reestablish my my uh, my personal stance uh, amongst in the in the eyes of all of the people around my me. Standing in the community. Yeah. Exactly. And even if the community is a completely illegal community, to begin with, yeah, like a sure. you know gang warfare or whatever, yeah. but it would be interesting to think about how many uh, how many of those. Those gang-related deaths are the result, really, of honor killings. Mm-hmm. We're using the word honor in a strange little way here. It's how, how they view their honor, not necessarily how they truly are right, it's not necessarily right or wrong. honorable, but no, a similar right. vibe of like, I have some sort of personal stake in my standing in the community, and if that gets threatened, then I have to reassert yeah. this, my standing. What, a, what a, a duel might give is the opportunity, in a sense, outside or above the law to, be, to, to, to deal with something that is not political. It's outside of its personal honor and, and, and virtue and things like that being de- dealt this with. About, this is about me asking off extra time, isn't it? You're about <laughs> right. what I'm building to here, Jack. <laughs> Next time you do that, I'm going to take you out back and shoot you. Slowly, uh, in a, in a, slowly pull the gossamer cloth off of two paintball guns. It's like... <laughs>
choose air, your weapon. <laughs> air rifles are 20 pesos. <laughs> no, no, doesn't have anything to do with you. Um, <laughs> what I'm thinking about is that there used to be a layer of society, a layer of our social interaction that was outside of politics. It was outside of party affiliations and... Right. And, and votes and elections and yeah. stuff like that. You could challenge to a duel somebody who was technically your own party. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with or party. Your own household. <laughs> and maybe often did. Uh, but I'm, I'm just thinking about how popular today this idea of, of solving everything within the political structure has become. Mm-hmm. I don't... I, you're always the one that's frustrated in our podcasts. Indeed. Seems like. And, and today I'm the one that's kind of frustrated because. I, I forbid it. <laughs> now that's not fair. That's no, just not, not fair. I'm so frustrated you're trying to take. <laughs> you're frustrated, Hodges. Somebody needs to be frustrated about this. Frustrated and I'm, enough to duel. <laughs> well, no, I was just using that as an example of, of somebody, of a, of a social interaction that would, that's kind of outside of our, of our political sphere. Right. It's, it's, it's as though we, it, it's like we used to have um, uh, a, an understanding that politics was a very small part of the larger thing that we called life. Mm-hmm. It, it included uh, family and uh, children and and making a living uh, f- to provide for your family. It included uh, idea, intangible ideas like justice and mercy and love and mm-hmm. and uh, time and yeah. things like that. Where th- there needs to be a kind of um, there needs to be a kind of legal uh, network or or something. I'm trying to write, find the right metaphor. Maybe it's a, a a a net underneath us to keep us from falling too far. Mm. But to think that everything that we do is tied up in that net is a uh, is a reduction of life to a far too small uh, size. Yeah, reduction was the word I was thinking of because I suppose some snarkily clever millennial-esque person could like try and point out how well everything's political you know like everything is bound to even you opinion. hear that a lot don't you yeah oh yeah like i mean it's a it's a slogan of like second wave feminism the personal is political mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, i mean somebody could argue you know like goodness even your family life has a connection to politics because like you're raising the next generation of voters or like your children can change how you view politics i mean people could like really flip their views to suddenly now they have kids Okay, <laughs> I almost said okay, boomer. I want to be like okay, zoomer. Okay, zoomer. <laughs> right. Okay, okay boomer. Zoomer. The catch is, it's not even. It's not that politics isn't a part of life. Oh yeah. But that's just it. It's a part of life, and life on the whole is not reducible to it. It's a little like saying that because I experience hunger, everything revolves around whether or not we grow tomatoes. <laughs> Right. Or something. Right. You know, there's... Everything resolves around the fight between tomatoes or squash. Right. 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 It's, it's foolishness. It's foolishness. And to think then that a political solution is going to be a solution for all kinds of problems too, mm. every problem we come across, is, uh, is a dangerous one because it's, it's assuming then that the choice of pesticide for your tomatoes or squash 
is is the only important question in your entire right. life, Nothing right? Matters. Yeah, it's it's a reduction of a reduction, seems to me. Mm-hmm. So what I'm thinking is, I just saw the bit of the Democratic. Uh, 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 debate yesterday, uh, and how could you? <laughs> I, well, and I don't want to. I, I really, you know, we at the, let me just say this: at the Center for Western Studies, we're interested not in politics as much as we're interested in ideas mm-hmm. and wrestling with the ideas that influence our lives and the and the way we look at the world and so on uh, is part and parcel of that work that we're doing at the yeah. center. That's essential to our to our uh, calling. Right. We're not interested in endorsing or bashing candidates or parties. Or no, that's in, in fact that would be to to do the very thing that I'm saying I'm frustrated right. about, isn't it? Right. Because I don't want to reduce what we're talking about down to simply siding with this guy or against that guy. But it happens that two of the three main uh, uh, candidates on the Democratic side are openly socialist. Yeah. They're not – I'm not putting words in their mouths. They themselves say, we think socialism is the way to go. Mm-hmm. You know, and we've and and one of them, I think uh, Sanders, has has not budged from that approach for his entire career. Yeah. So this is not a new turn in his no. mind. This is this is it. A, ra- a rarity, a, a consistent politician. Exactly. Exactly. In that way, I I kind of respect him. Yeah. I I would love to have somebody who's standing on some sort of principle, uh, and yet I couldn't disagree more about about socialism itself. Um, and I think here's, – here's the problem that gets me so frustrated. I think people think when they hear socialism, what they hear is all of the good things that socialism promises to try and offer everybody uh, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Good things like education or uh, access to health care or uh, minimum wages so that they're making a decent living or – uh, I mean, you can go on and on. There are a lot of things that they promise. Uh, well, a welfare net uh, in in the system. All of those things seem, on the surface, to be very good things. And so, if you were to oppose socialism, mm-hmm. you sound like you're opposing those things. Sure, that's simply not the case. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is taking the the sort of utopian goals of socialism that in themselves may be very good things. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could debate those things. Uh, but instead, finding out that we're really talking, when we talk socialism, we're talking about the means to accomplish those ends and not the ends themselves. Right. It's the criticism of the means. Not That's the right. That's right. And I think we need to re-establish what it is that uh, the means of socialism are uh, and what are, what are intended. Because even if you are in favor of a free education, free college education for everybody, which a lot of them are in favor of now, even if you think uh, that that would be a good thing to do, and I'm not convinced that it is, but never mind, that's not the point. If it were a good thing, there's still two huge questions involved. One, what the content of the education is going to be, and two, what the purpose of the education is going to be. Mm-hmm. And the, pro- the problem at the root of both of those is one thing, I think, mm-hmm. and that is the question of who gets to decide. Okay. Who decides what the content is going to be? 
for the education and who decides who gets it and in what way and 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 what what are we hoping to accomplish with our with our education for our students mm. if if the idea of free education is appealing it's because we're you know, suffering under, say, huge uh, uh, school debt and yeah. hope that our own children won't have that kind of uh, school debt to wrestle with, maybe. Uh, it would certainly be a lot, a lot better if everybody were just free of this, this, uh, this yeah. uh, student loan debt, right? Well, that, yeah. I mean, it's in the trillions now, the student loan debt. It's unbelievable. Well, the thing about having massive student debt is you can understand from the inside the arguments of people who are like, you know... If they passed a law that canceled all student debt, I wouldn't complain. As yeah, I'm yeah. not sitting here and I don't buy socialist stuff whatsoever, and even I feel it. it. Very tempting. You Absolutely know, right. If I woke up the next day and like President Warren had passed a law, and all, I looked in like my over hundred thousand dollar student debt was now zero. Yeah, and I was off the hook. There is some part of me that would be like vastly relieved. Oh my goodness, who even wouldn't be? No, it's an untenable system. Absolutely right. So the, so the idea of accomplishing these things might be very appealing on the surface. But the question in my mind is always who gets to decide? Who, is, who has the authority to decide these things? And what I, what I think is the, 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 what, what the people who are in favor of actually implementing socialism – not just implementing the good ideas that they're pr- promising, right, but the implementing ends. the means right. are ones who say that the, the authority ought to rest with me. Mm. And that scares the pants off of me mm. and makes me rather frustrated that people don't see that when they start talking about the benefits of socialism. Right. So how do we get clear the differences between the ends of something and the means to get there. Mm-hmm. Um, recently, I wrote a little thing about, about uh, uh, the impeachment hearings mm-hmm. and how it is that we come to the point that we're impeaching a president. Well, the question in my mind is always who gets to decide? Who's the one who gets the authority to decide? Well, the Constitution, thankfully, says that the people of the country are the highest authority. And if the people of the country are the highest authority, then they get to vote their representatives into Washington, call it a House of Representatives, and allow them to have final say over whether or not a particular president is impeached. Mm. So you might disagree completely with the, the articles of impeachment or whether there was anything wrong done, any of that stuff. But as far as our, our country is concerned, the best way, with all of its flaws, the best way uh, to solve the question, should he or shouldn't he be impeached, is to allow the re- representatives of our people to make the decision. And they did. They did. For better or worse, they decided, the House of Representatives decided to impeach the president. What can you say that would overturn that without disrupting the very fabric of the culture, that, of the country that we have uh, crafted, right? So, so you can't just say, no, he isn't. <laughs> you, know, you have to say there's an authority here, and the authority is the people, and the people spoke, and they said this is, this is what's going on, so we accept that he's been impeached. Mm-hmm. I think by the very same token, 
the same approach should be taken for the Senate. That is that the Senate is going to judge whether or not he should be removed from office because the impeachment, of course, is just an an indictment, right, right? not a conviction. And the conviction in the Senate is going to be yea or nay based on the representatives of the people. Mm -hmm. And the people, right, at this minute, I think it's pretty likely that the people's representatives will vote not to convict just based on how many people there are there and the fact that they see it as a very political uh, ex- uh, thing here and not so much a legal thing. But uh, all that aside, it's their decision to make. And so if they decide that he's not guilty of these, this indictment and he's not taken out of office, then the whole country has got to say the people have spoken and – right. And the point of to bring this of bringing this up is not again not about politics. It's about the idea of who gets to make the final decision about things. Mm. And in this case, it's a political decision, and the political decision is only in the hands of the people's representatives. Well, in socialism, it's an economic decision. Right, and so in socialism, the question has to be: uh, when you're debating socialism, you have to have to ask who is it that gets to decide what the content of an education should be, what the minimum wages should be like, what the, uh, uh, what the health, who should get health care and when, right? And we have this weird idea that if we were just to put it in the hands of something called the government, in other words, put it into the political sphere, that then we somehow would get even an equal treatment for everybody. Yeah. The question of whose hands it is in I think is something that cuts politically right and left. Yes. Right? That's what everybody's actually concerned about. Because when I think, because I'm always, you know, trying my best and lamest to like keep my finger to the pulse of what the average sort of, you know, uh, snarky, internet savvy, millennial, millennial type would be like, but they're basically generally thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Assessment. Yeah. And the assessment that I get just by the small pool of like friends, associates, peers, and acquaintances that I frequent their thoughts every once in a while, mainly through social media, is they too are concerned about who has the say. And interestingly enough, if they're in favor of socialism or socialistic practices, part of that is because they think that will actually return the say to the people. Uh-huh. Because... They see the government, it's like a, is it two-pronged? Maybe it's two-pronged. I'm not going to count the prongs. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> they see it as the government is our representative. Mm-hmm. Therefore, if you empower the government to do X, you're just basically empowering us, just through our representatives. Mm-hmm. That's one. And two, currently, things are not decided by the people. Your health care is not decided by you. It's decided by massive insurance companies, right? The minimum wage is not decided by you. It's decided by big businesses. Um, your tuition is not decided by you. It's decided by uh, universities and stuff and also government subsidization, but we won't talk about that. It's, all, it's, it's, it's decided by forces, not you. Flip it on the other side, you know, the impeachment, right, is like, what are you going? You know, what are you going to say? No, he isn't. Well, of course they are. Why? Because it's not the people who impeached him; it's the swamp, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. On right and left, there's always the positing of whether it's a legitimate positing or not. There's a positing of the boogeyman. All right. 
somebody who is actually in control. You know, maybe the wizard is better, like the mm-hmm. guy behind the curtain mm-hmm. who's actually in control, and you want to be in control, you want to have the say, but someone else actually does. And again, this is a right or this is a right and left thing. All right, the left has their, you know, uh, systemic layers of oppression and whatever, and the right has. I mean, what did what Donald Trump like repeat in his 2016 campaign? He said the system's rigged, right, or the rigging of the system. Right, the swamp is another sort of way people talk about that. Whether there actually is a swamp or not is not the point. The point is that people think there's something in the way of the people being in charge. Right, right. And so how do you get the people back in charge? And so somebody who's, again, sympathetic to those ends, healthcare, the minimum wage, all that jazz, you know, living minimum wage, free healthcare, free college education, um, a universal basic income, you know, mm-hmm. get on the mm-hmm. Yang Gang mm-hmm. train or whatever it is, mm-hmm. all that stuff. That's empowering the government who represents us. So that's empowering the people to disentangle the special interests and the cronyism and the corporatism and all that jazz that's actually wielded control, right, away from us. Or you elect, you know, a president and his team or whatever to go in and drain the swamp and finally return power to the people and fight the big interests of both the special interest, I guess another thing Trump will say sometimes, the special interest or whatever, or China is being unfair or NATO's not paying their way or whatever. All these people who are making decisions that are not what we want. We empower the government some way to wrest power away from the ones who've taken it away from us. And so on the socialist issue, that's definitely, I think that's at the core of it, that the government, what's wrong with giving the government the authority to wrest power away from those who are taking it away from us isn't the government simply the people. Mm-hmm. I, th- I feel like that's something that, mm-hmm. let's deal with the socialist one. Let's not talk about the swamp one exactly right now, but just deal with that socialist one. I feel like that would be, if they don't articulate that way, that would be their instinct. What's wrong, we, the people ought to be in charge the government is the avatar of the people. The people are not in charge because there's all these bigger forces like businesses and corporations and all that jazz that are deciding for us what's wrong with empowering the government to go after those people. Mm-hmm. So I think I hear what you're saying, that both left and right create a kind of boogeyman out of either for the left, big business, or for the right, big government. Mm-hmm. And in doing so point the finger and say that's that's the reason that we're not free that's the reason that we're not able to do what we want to do right right uh and it does seem interesting to me that that we would combine economics and politics together because in my mind those are two separate areas but i know very well that they are overlapping Mm -hmm. because uh well because of taxation for example Mm -hmm. because there's there's money from business that goes to the government and then money, sadly, in cronyism, from the government that goes to business. Right. So, as conservatives, we believe in what is the free market, or like Roger Scruton, may he rest in peace, um, called free economics. Okay, which is just simply the idea that the market is a human thing. It's an organic. Uh, it's organic. It, it arises out of our myriad of interactions and exchanges with each other from a myriad of motivations, and any sort of attempt at top-down planning uh, runs into, was it, was, it, was it Hayek who had the, the knowledge problem? So somebody had the knowledge problem. But it was the idea, the knowledge problem is, is basically an argument against top-down centralized planning because there is no way to gather the whole, aha, I figured it out, because that's not how it works. Because like the knowledge 
for the market is diffused throughout the entirety of the market. That's right. And it's that, and it's constantly changing and warping and moving around and stuff like that. And that's how it's supposed to work. It ought to be free, as unimpeded as possible, you know, as, as reasonably possible. Right. And so we believe in that. In addition, as far as I can tell from my reading, a history of conservatism also has a instinctive or intuitive distrust of what I've called bigness, all right? The, we always have more of a fan of, like, what's local, what's near, what's concrete. You go back to Edmund Burke, uh, some of the, the father of, like, intellectual conservatism in a lot of ways. He was an empiricist. So, like, he was a big enemy of those daggum abstract rationalists in the French Revolution That's who, right. who wanted to raise to the ground the very complicated, complex, woven, interwoven, overlapping relationships, buildings, customs, and stuff that have been built over hundreds and hundreds of years. They just, in the way people associate and relate, or relate to each other that have been built up over hundreds and hundreds of years, they just wanted to raise it to the ground on the basis of a bunch of abstract principles like liberty, equality, and fraternity. That's right. And he's like, that's super dangerous and dumb. Conservatism has that in its bones. And part of that being more rooted in groundedness is also kind of a, the local and immediate is something that's wiser to base things on than something big and distant and more detached. And so conservatism, I feel like, has always had sort of a distrust of bureaucracy and technocracy and things that sort of letting, gosh, this is why Captain America is so awesome, right? It's like some, you know, in the Captain America Civil War, is big beef with like, he didn't necessarily disagree with Tony that the Avengers needed to be put in check. But the question is, and this is to you, Hodges, who gets to put us in check? That's right. Right? That's right. And, Who has the authority? And Captain, he thought the safer hands were our own, that we keep each other in check and not some bureaucratic uh, agency thousands of miles away from what we're doing. Right? That was his sort of argument. It's a very conservative argument. Mm -hmm. Sorry, Marvel fans. But it's a very conservative kind of argument. That's true. And so what we run into, I think, at least this is what I run into, I don't know you can clarify your own thoughts on this. Uh, your own personal thoughts on this. What I run into is, on the one hand, I want the market free. Okay, top-down planning is just, I mean, it's diabolical. Okay, it's like satanic hubris to act like you can top-down plan, you know, a society and an economy. So I want it free. On the flip side, I don't trust bigness. And thus, when there are corporations and stuff like that, I don't have the sort of knee-jerk hatred that a Marxist would, but there is something in me that necessarily kind of distrusts them, distrusts something that's big, right, like that. Maybe they prove me wrong. Maybe they turn out to have all fine dealings and everything is fine, but my, my skepticism is mm -hmm. over there. Mm -hmm. So I guess I say all that to say that even as a conservative, I understand people wanting to look at, not because it's like people say, well, we want to break up the corporations or we want to put them down, then people say, so, you want all businesses to be torn to the ground. Like, now we're taking a massive multinational corporation and a little mom-and-pop store and acting like they're the same thing. Right. Which, right. in one way, they are, and in another way, they're not the same thing. Right. And so I often find myself, I don't know if frustrated is the right word, consternated. That's a good one. I started with ah. that I find myself sometimes consternated because it's not, it's like, I want the market free, socialism's of the devil, Crony capitalism and even in bigness is all. Ah, back up. I want markets free, socialism's of the devil, bigness is dangerous. Mm -hmm. And so, big business, big government, 
when they're not boogeymen, when it actually is a government that's way too big and bloated and powerful, and it's when, and also when it's businesses that are massive and bureaucratic and have a little too much power to like do cronyism. Yeah. Then I look at both of those. I'm like, yeah, those are both bad. Well, that's that's right. That's what I was going to be talking about next when I was saying that I know that there is an overlap between government and business uh, simply because there is such a thing as taxation. And so money is flowing from both in both directions. Uh, Flowing one way is at least legitimate if everybody is taxed the same way. All businesses are taxed the same way. Uh, but flowing the other way is not legitimate. I don't think yeah. that it's not the place of the government to be picking winners and losers in a field like that. Right. I'm, I appreciate what you're saying about bigness, though. I think that's a, that's a dangerous thing. When something gets so big that it can actually wag the entire community, then, yeah, then that's why we've always had antitrust laws. Uh, so the government, but here's that, that, that bit, um, enlightens about what I think the government's role is really supposed to be. And we started off the conversation about saying that there's a whole lot to life that isn't actually political or governmental. Mm -hmm. Um, The purpose of the government is actually a rather small but extremely important purpose, and that is to play the referee. Mm-hmm. To be the guy who throws the flag when there's a when there's a penalty on the field, you know, right. uh, the government is supposed to be able to put laws in place not to benefit a particular company, but to make the the, the playing field even for everybody, big and small, and not allow the the largeness of a, one particular company to overshadow the, right. the the smallness of another. That that they. But but the problem, this is why I say I think it's bad for money to be going in the other direction. That means the the referee is choosing which side yeah. is going to win in the market. <laughs> see, and that's right. no good. It's like the referee deciding uh, which team should should win in the in the game. Yeah. So the the point you're making about bigness is really good. But I've always seen the two of those things as separate. That is business on one side and and uh, and uh, politics on the other, or government on the other, and that their roles are separated. So that, yes, we need a government to be able to be the referee, but all of the rest of life needs that referee. So all of the rest of life might contribute to taxes to making sure the government can run and the police system can run and the court systems and the and the legislatures and all the things that have to be done in order to make that referee work done properly. But then if you think that since there are wrongs being done in the business world that we need to tweak the laws over here mm. and it's not to tweak them to to be a good referee that is to make sure nobody gets speared with a helmet like they do in football or whatever <laughs> um, that that applies to everybody if you but if you think you can use the power of government to actually control how businesses disseminate their their profits to their people, for yeah. example, or uh, how they're supposed to be able to uh, wipe out their opposition and so on. Yeah. It misses the whole point because the power shouldn't be in the, in the business. The power should be in the person buying the profit, making the profit for the business. That is, we all ought to be able to say if we don't want IBM products anymore because they're doing the wrong things out there, we should all say we're not going to buy them anymore. And that's where the power is. That's the equivalent power of the people to the representatives in the in the legal yeah. realm. It's a common the common thread between both like the it's the swamp stupid and it's the corporation stupid argument is that 
what's government supposed to do? Yeah. And for both of them, the government is supposed to be not someone who restores constitutional order and establishes the government as the referee who's supposed to be not their fingers in any of this stuff. It's not supposed to be all that stuff. No, the government's supposed to be the avatar of our vengeance, mm-hmm. right? It's supposed to be our hero who, like, you know, takes him out. With, I remember, gosh, I remember when Trump won back to us. I hate bringing up names because we're not trying to bash or endorse anybody just as examples because it's all in the air i remember back when trump won there was all kinds of crazy memes and gifts and stuff that went around um yeah uh yeah yeah uh whatever all kinds of videos and stuff went around there was one that went around that comes from a show that i've never watched but i know but i just know what it is because it was just ubiquitous for a while there it was entourage and there's a mm-hmm. character in there who's like the agent of the main character. The main character's like some actor and his buddies go around with him. He has an agent played by Jeremy Ribbon? Ribbon? Whatever. I don't know. He's a famous character. But apparently there was some part in the show where like he got, you know, by hook and crook, got ousted from his own agency where he was in charge of. Hmm. And that's part of some sort of dramatic plot line. And eventually he finds his way back. And there's a famous moment apparently when he, his first day back where he like shows up. And like the music by the one hit wonder by the heavy called How You Like Me Now is playing. And it's just him comes in an elevator in his suit, dressed for work with a massive paintball gun. Ah. He just goes around <laughs> and he just starts, you know, he shows up and some guy's like, hey man, what are you doing back here? He's like, hey, and just blows the guy away with like paintball gun. He's like, I'm back and you're fired. Like that. And he just goes oh, around and shoots everybody with a paintball Great, gun. Great, yeah. Scott. Well, somebody took this video and just like, Photoshop Trump's head onto him, oh. and then Photoshop like Joe Biden's head onto somebody, oh, and like yeah, various yeah. senators, until finally it culminates where like Jeremy Revan's character like confronts the guy who did it all. Mm. It's like they put Trump's head on Jeremy Revan's and put Obama's head on that guy. Oh, and that's like I the see, final yeah. thing. And it was, that's the image, right? It's like he's not just going to go in there and reestablish constitutional order and clear out all this. No, he's going to go and he's going to you know kick butt and take names. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Elizabeth Warren is not going to like reestablish, you know, constitutional order and end subsidization and eliminate, you know, the borders that are drawn between insurance companies so that we can actually have a true free market of insurances, which we don't have. Mm-hmm. You know, she's not going to deregulate so that the market can be free and restore constitutional order and neutrality. No, she's going to be the warrior woman who strikes at the heart of all the greedy, exploitative corporate things and punish them. Right. You know, not simply restore balance and order and neutrality and the referee thing and start being, not restore real justice, but establish vengeance. Vengeance, yeah, right. right. And I think that's... And both sides have a picture of that in their minds. Both sides have a picture of that. Right. And that's where, as a conservative, I'm sitting there and I'm like, bigness is bad, the free markets and all that, but there's an additional thing. The government's not supposed to be your avatar of vengeance. Right. Like, that's not what it's there for. Right. And any scheme that says, this person's going to go in and clean house is suspect like that's not what the government is for the government's not there to go and like be your avatar of vengeance i mean yes you may need somebody to go in there and within the government itself clean out corruption clean out you know fix things do things to fix regulations so they actually help the market rather than hinder it or something like that yeah you know maybe you need that but you're not there to exact vengeance that's not what the government can do it's not what it's supposed to do that's how governments can turn tyrannical that's how the, because that's how they become demagoguish is when they like uh, become the the will of the people to exact revenge on our enemies and i think that's 
it's a trap that I think a lot of my millennial peers fall too easily in. This is a side issue, but like, just as another example, even the social justice issue can have a lot of good ends, you know, in, in mind. Some kind of equality or some sort of like, uh, you know, a, re, a, a readdressing of grievances of some kind or something like that. But somehow the thing always in tone or in deed or somewhere along the line trips too much into the sense of vengeance. Mm -hmm. There's somebody who did us wrong or did somebody wrong, and it's not simply rebalancing the scales or reestablishing or something like that. It's about making them pay. Yeah, sure. And that is always that's sure. always dangerous. And if and imagine mixing that into this question of who gets to decide about things. So if I want I'm proposing socialism and I paint a rosy utopian picture of how everything will be equal and everybody will be happy uh, because they have all these equal and free things. Uh, and then, uh, but underneath I'm thinking the means to get there, the socialist means to get there is to actually deny a free market and, and require that all of the product, productivity of our uh, society be in the hands of the government. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- I'm not I'm not advertising that part. Actually, to tell you the truth, some people like that idea. Yeah, okay? I mean that's not even that. Ana- uh, uh, that's part of my frustration because I think how can you really think that would be a good idea? Uh, I remember somebody describing uh, Obama's health care plan as uh, all of the efficiency of the post office with all the bedside manner of the IRS. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what you want for your? Yeah. You know. Uh, so I'm just always kind of at a, in a, at a loss. But they actually think, well, maybe that would be a better way to do it than so on. Yeah. But imagine, though, if the guy who's, who's offering socialism and with all that utopian beauty uh, is convincing people to side with him and vote for him and, and help him to implement this, this deal, but always underneath thinking, and I'll get to run it all. Yeah. And then mix into it your picture that government is really for the purposes of vengeance. Yeah. Then what's it going to be like? It's going to look pretty ugly when it happens. Yeah, it's not just going to be the government fixes things; as they become our ability to get revenge on all those fat cats who that's right who have been bloated and catch you know. And and where does that stop? I mean, the ask. But <laughs> does actually stop. ask Robespierre yeah. what he thought of the whole thing? You know, ten months before he died, he yeah. would have said, "This is the greatest thing ever," right? Yeah. And then he becomes a victim of the very the very thing that he killed Danton over. So yeah. the, the French Revolution actually starts to eat its own. And and once you've given this power to the government to decide who gets vengeance and who doesn't, then uh, how does it ever stop? How, why why if you if you can if you can turn the guns of your of your authority on your political opponent on the in the other party? Yeah. Then eliminate him, and now you're in charge, and there's nobody to stop you. What what stops you from turning it on to your your opponents within your own party and start getting after them, right? So, yeah. uh, it's just a dangerous thing altogether, where you yeah. start putting the power of the of what should be what should be in the hands of the people into the hands of only a few people, uh, because as Acton said, I think it's his. Right. And it, oh, absolute, absolute power corrupts. Power absolutely. corrupts, absolutely. And the thing is, is remember, they want to say, yes, but the governments are the representative of us. And the truth is, is that where the power is actually more in the hands of the people, 
is actually not in the government. It's in the market. I think so, too. Right. And especially if, if, you can, if you can divide the articles from each other. If you can say, this is an economic problem, and th- but this over here is a legal problem. If you can do that, then you can say, well, the, if it's a legal problem, then the people ought to be able to say through their representatives how to deal with it. But if it's an economic problem, then the people ought to be able to say how to deal with it through the marketplace. Yeah. But what's happening these days with socialism is that we're undoing that separation and we're deciding to make everything under the government. Yeah. Whatever the problems are with business, and there are many, okay? I don't hear me saying that there aren't. But, but uh, whatever the problems are there, they'll be multiplied if you put it all in the hands of, of elected officials. Because those elected officials can manipulate the law and how it adjusts everything that goes on in business practice. And frankly, without a, this, is, this is at the core of the problem with socialism, I think. Without the motivation to profit, it's very hard to motivate a person to work hard. So if I, if I think I'm going to put in eight, eight hours a, a day in my job, but all the money that I make is going to go to the government, and then the government is going to decide how much I should be paid, then it's a hugely different motivation than to think if I work harder at work, I'll get paid more. Yeah. Right. And you can think about it about it certainly easily in a farm. If you don't if you don't till the ground out there, if you don't do the work, you're not going to get the benefit, right? The fruit of it. But you can you can apply it easily to what you do in a in a in a, a free market too. If you don't pay me enough to do the job here, and I want to do a really good job, maybe Bob down the street will pay me more. Yeah. So I'm going to go work for him instead. See, so there's pressure on you to give me the 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 uh, salary that I that I think I deserve. Now, if I'm fooling myself and I'm not doing a good job, yeah. right, which is the case a lot of the time too, and I say, well, I'm going to go see Bob about it, and Bob says, well, I'm telling you, you're not doing as good a job. I can't, I can't beat his price. Uh, I can't hire you for more than – well, then I'm, I better do a better job for Joe, yeah. right? So anyway, all of it has to do with the, the individual having the final say over things. It's true. But it's a question of whether it's an economic problem, in which case it has to be dealt with through the market, or a political problem, which has to be dealt with through the legislature or the three-part federal uh, whatever yeah. constitution. Let me read a – I think, I think uh, uh, Hayek in his Road to Serfdom says this pretty well about the differences between the means and the ends. You know what we were talking about? Yeah. Let me just read a sentence here or two. Hayek says, before we can progress with our main problem, an obstacle yet has to be surmounted. A confusion largely responsible for the way in which we are drifting into things which nobody wants must be cleared up. The confu- this confusion concerns nothing less than the concept of socialism itself. It may mean, as it is often used to describe, Merely the ideals of social justice, greater equality, security, which are the ultimate aims of socialism. But it means also the particular method by which most socialists hope to attain these ends and which many competent people regard as the only methods by which they can be fully and quickly attained. In this sense, socialism means the abolition of private enterprise, of private ownership, and the means of production, and the creation of a system of, quote, planned economy, in which the entrepreneur working for profit is replaced by a central planning body. Mm. That's what socialism is. It actually is this 
this means of accomplishing the good ends that they say they want to accomplish, and that is abolishing the free market altogether, saying that the problem is in the free market. If we can regulate the free market, we can have uh, a far more uh, just society. Yeah. And I remember back in the 70s, I'm old enough to remember before you were born, um, the in the 70s, we uh, decided that we would, as a country, we decided we would put... Um, caps on uh, gasoline prices. Mm. They didn't want to let gasoline be too, so much, so, so expensive, that people couldn't afford to buy it. Right. So they thought, we'll do a good thing here. We'll put a cap on the, on the gasoline. Well, it's very foolish because the, the, the price is set based on how much of something is there to be had and how much there's a desire for that thing, right? right. Supply and demand. Right. If there's, a high, if there's a high supply and low demand, it's going to be super cheap. If there's a low supply but a high demand, it's going to be super expensive. And so the a- price actually comes about by the combination of yeah. those two things, right? So if you start tinkering with the price itself and the demand goes down, well, then why should we pay that much for it? Mm-hmm. See, or if the demand goes up for it, then the guy who's selling it to me is having to lose money by selling it to me. Yeah. So what he what does he do? And that's what happened in the gas shortage of uh, of uh, the seventies. The 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 oil companies decided that I can't make any profit selling it at the low price that the government has dictated. Yeah. See, the actual getting the oil out of the ground and shipping it to the gas station costs me more than I get from selling that gallon at the price that they're allowing. So what do I do? You don't. I don't sell it. I stockpile it all. I hide it somewhere until the prices will go up, and then I'll sell it and I'll make my profit. Right, and it's not. And here's the catch for you, socialist, sensitive people out there: it's not greed. It's a matter of untenableness. Yeah, it can't be done. It, it can't, whereas now he's stockpiling because, well, I'll just wait till I can make more money from the masses. No, if it literally costs this much to, put it, to pull it out and ship it, but you're not going to get that back, that is not a tenable system. You end up having to lay people off. Yeah, if you tried to be close a close nice, down your shops. If you tried to be a nice person, like, well, I'm going to send it anyway, no matter what the profits. Your business will collapse, and then nobody gets gas. It's a very practical matter. It's not yeah. a matter of personal greed. It's a very practical matter, and so that's what happened. And you know what that ends up being, right? You you put a cap on the price to keep it down so that everybody can afford it. And then what happens? You have a shortage of gasoline. Mm -hmm. Now, anybody can afford it at that price, but there isn't any to buy. Yeah. Nobody will sell it. And so what we ended up doing was we, we um, we would only be allowed to go and fill up our cars on the days that were either odd or even based on the last digit of our license plate number. Oh, okay. So yeah, if your license plate ends in a three, then you go only on the first, third, fifth, seventh of the month. You can't go on the second or the fourth. And if your license plate ends in a five or six, rather, then you could go on the second and fourth and, eight, you know, like the, it just didn't make any sense. But it, every, and the lines were long. They were down the street from the gas station waiting. I, just, I didn't even live through that, but I'm just sitting there like that's absolute insanity. That's what like, happened. You, you, can, you can like only on the first, the fifth, the seventh. But yes, because everybody who has their license plates number with a certain number has the exact same lifestyle and the exact same needs, the exact same emergencies and the exact same occurrences and vagaries of life that are going to make it or every single time they need gasoline it's only going to be on one of those four that's so 
Now I'm getting loud. It's so <laughs> stupid. I'm sorry. Somebody, well, it I'm was sorry. In- somebody once told me that leftist ideas about things have a better understand, are better at analyzing the material world. And I'm sitting there. I'm like, no, it's not. No, no it truly isn't. It's it foolishness. Not understand existence. And at it's all. and it's a second. It's a second layer of stupid because the cap to begin with was stupid. But then to deal with the results of that cap, we initiated this either odd or even uh, day thing. Because think that. That's more fair, right? So the whole idea is that it's all based on this this notion of fairness. But fairness can't be dictated by rule. No. It can't be dictated by rule. It can only the only the dimensions of the playing field can be di- dictated right. by rule, and then within the playing field, you have to let happen what happens. Yeah, and fairness is often a case by case thing anyway, because everybody's different and their situations are different. Right. I mean, this is like it's this not understanding of just practical matters like that. I remember somebody showing pictures of during like when this was recent. Okay, this is my lifetime, Hodges. Ha ha. <laughs> during some hurt, like I slept through most of your life. Right. <laughs> Since most of like since like recently there had been some bad hurricanes that came through, somebody pointed out that there was a store somewhere and where a hurricane had gone through and you know it was devastated. Everyone was like trying to pitch in to help. There was a store that would price gouge on like oh yeah packs of like w- bottles of water like sure. big fifty packs of bottles of water. Demand went through the roof, and so they just raised they the price. Sure. And people, I think, on like social media, like went viral about how to see this is the greed of capitalism taking advantage of like you know all this stuff. And somebody wrote an essay saying that price gouging saved people's lives. Exactly right. How did it do it? You tell it. You because tell me. I know. Demand what you're was high, say. but the supply was limited. Right. And if he just dropped, it, oh, it's just free. It's just free. Then the first five people with the biggest trucks to take all the water away That's right. get all the water. That's exactly right. By gouging on the prices, you made it where people only got it when they needed it, and you made sure there was still a supply. Right. Exactly. And the company that actually bottles the water takes a look at that and says, hey, there's such a huge demand there in Florida or whatever there in this hurricane. We better ship some more water right. down there, see? So they actually get more benefit from it right. by the price going up because the water company is saying, hey, I can get an extra five bottle, five bucks per whatever, yeah. you know, for my water. For my, I'll sell it there. Right. So it's just, it's a lack of understanding. We could cut this part out, but I remember I had a discussion with somebody who it was a very good discussion online. It was mm. very, um, it was very thoughtful and stuff. And it ended with them saying they didn't understand why I was conservative because they thought that leftist uh, intellectual things and stuff and analysis explain material reality better. Oh yeah. And at the time, I didn't really have an answer, mainly because I felt like that is sort of a problem with contemporary conservatism is we don't. We don't ex- we don't have our material ex- explanations of things in a, or in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a row like the left wing does. Mm-hmm. You know, their intersectionality is just ready to go. It's a perfect. It's just a. It's, it's fully formulated. It's articulated. It's disseminated. Everybody's got it. It's a way of understanding the material world. So at first I was like, yeah, we don't do a good job of really explaining it. We do, and I think we don't. There's some kind of communication issue. Mm-hmm. But the more I think about it, and I did tell him this about the empiricism. The more I think about it. They don't have better explanations of material. This came to me more clearly when I just read an essay somebody posted online who is a a, a very dear person, so it's not like bashing on them, but they posted an essay that they love called How to Explain White Privilege to a Poor White Person. Mm -hmm. And it's a great essay, not because I agree with it, I vehemently disagree with it, but it's a great essay because it explains white privilege and intersectionality in a very non-polemical way 
oh, yeah. neutral kind of way. Uh-huh. All right. Uh-huh. The way they tried to explain it was just so gentle and just so very courteous and very civil. And it's so perfectly demonstrated how stupid leftist ways of viewing material reality are. Because mm-hmm. it said, look, what white privilege for someone, you look at like a poor white person, someone who lives out in the, you know, in where the opioid epidemic is or something like that. You try to tell them, explain them white privilege, you need to understand that even in their poverty and even in all the stuff that they're going through and awfulness and class issues, mm-hmm. On issues of race, they still got it made. <laughs> they can. Here's some of the examples. Here's some of the examples. Okay, they can open a newspaper and see more of themselves represented than other people. That's a privilege, right? This was my favorite. It was like the IRS won't audit you over race. It's like, oh, yay. Congratulations, okay? You're a poor white person. I, I, I looked at that. Look, look, that, is an a, that is an abstraction, all right? This, right. this, this thing is abstraction. I said, let's try and apply it to like an actual particular poor white person who lives somewhere in Appalachia, who just got laid off his job because tariffs have made things too expensive. And just when he gets laid off his job, he's got to do his taxes, but now he can't afford internet service, so he has to go to the library. But he also can't afford Tax Act or HR&R Block, so he has to do it by himself. And he doesn't know if he did it right. And so he's trying to do it right. And also one of his kids is like suffering from the opioid epidemic, and his wife was working three jobs, and she's stressed out. So all that stuff is emotionally stressing him out. And so not only does he not know if he's doing it right, but he's got all that pressure upon him, but he still tries to do it anyway. And so, of course, he probably messes it up because he knows what he's doing. And so the IRS comes and audits him anyway. Mm-hmm. But at least they didn't audit you over race. Am I right, buddy? And it's like, <laughs> what a stupid, idiotic way of looking at yeah, things. Why? Funny. Because it doesn't see people. Right. It doesn't see people, right. see groups, categories, and abstractions. It doesn't see material reality. Yeah. It has this abstractionist, hyper-rationalist grid that hides reality from it and makes them think they're seeing it. Excellent. Yeah, it's so true. It's, it's so, so true. It's so frustrating. And it's part of what we've been always talking about, about cultural Marxism, that simply turns everybody into a member of a group. Right, you're a member yeah. of a of a race, or you're a member of an economic strata, or a member of a gender, or sexual orientation, or whatever, and then pits all those things against each other, and and then calls when those things are uh, abused, calls calls that injustice. It's yeah. a disconnect with reality. I yeah. think, is the problem, like the actual lived existence that we experience, and the and the reality of the power of the government is in establishing rules and, as we've said, uh, a kind of referee position uh, so that the free market can actually be free within it. Um, But if you decide that you're going to allow that rulemaking body to dictate how the proceeds of our our, uh, economic world are going to go, then you've mixed the two together to such a degree that you, you can't escape from crony capitalism. Right. Because now anybody that has any kind of power with you, getting, getting, the, getting to know the, your senator, getting to know your congressman, getting to know uh, your political entity, uh, and getting him to somehow vote so that your business succeeds yeah. uh, means – that, that, I mean, this is the definition of crony capitalism. Because you're now you're, – you're voting, so you're getting somebody into place – 
on the uh, and, and maybe donating to his uh, uh, election in order that he might then, when he gets elected, give you the kind of laws you want, and the profits that you make from the laws that he's made for your benefit then go to a certain degree, kick back to him, see, yeah. and then he it just goes like that. And now the market is not free. You can say what you like about the damage that big business does, but if that's the way it's going, yeah. it's not big business anymore. Yeah. It's it's something. It's a it's a hybrid of the two that is truly diabolical. Which is why the disconnect with reality is just not understanding what government, act, either A, not understanding what your government's problems actually are, right. or and B, not understanding what a government can actually effectively do. Right. And one thing it cannot effectively do is be your avatar of vengeance. That's right. right. If you make it your avatar of vengeance, either A, the cronyism is so bad that it'll be like, yeah, avatar of vengeance, right? Against the businesses that, you know, are not a part of my constituents or something like that. Or it don't stop until the party gets purged, mm-hmm. right? And that will happen. And that happens. That's why it is that you have so many examples in the world of communism that comes up out of socialism and ends up destroying the very people that it oversees. Mm-hmm. It, you can't, if you know anything about history, you can't deny the history of Russia or China or uh, Cambodia or Cuba or Venezuela or any of these other places that have ended up, started off saying, let's do all this great stuff for everybody and everybody will be equal, and then eventually ends up shooting the people who don't go along with it. Yeah. It's sad. It's not, it's not something, you know, it, it's easy to sort of point your finger at some, some diabolical person like, you know, uh, Mao Zedong uh, and say, well, see, he was a rotten guy. Well, yeah, it wasn't, it, but he wasn't doing socialism the right way. The argument is always, you know, we should be doing it like Denmark or we should be doing it like somebody else. Or maybe nobody's done it right yet and we could be the first, you see. But that's that kind of utopian mindset. And, but you can't, you can't separate the, the belief system that brought Mao to power from the actions that Mao then felt like he had to take in order to stay in power. Yeah. You can't separate them. Same thing with Castro. The same thing with, with uh, Che Guevara or Pol Pot, uh, Pol Pot or Stalin or um, who's the guy, uh, uh, who's the fellow from uh, Nicaragua? Um, oh, uh, Chavo. Uh, no, um, not Chavo. Oh, what is his name? Um, you all know who Chavez. I mean. Is that Chavez? Uh, yeah, Chavez. That's it. Chavez. Hugo, Hugo Chavez. No, no, he's from Venezuela. Oh, he's you're talking about Nicaragua. Okay, yeah, I'm Nicaragua. Venezuela, Hugo Chavez. That's right. But the, uh, the Nicaraguan fellow was a monster, too. So anyway, maybe I can cut some of that out because it's confusing. But um, the point is you can't – anybody who comes to power under those circumstances ends up using that power – against his own citizens to a great degree because he has to, even if, even if for the best of intentions, he has to say, well, these few pockets of people out there who are keeping us from being able to do it the right way are standing in the way. They've got to be eliminated. Yeah. One of the things that we hear in terms of free education, for example, is that that we don't know what the education is going to be like. And there was someone who was uh, in Bernie Bernie, uh, Sanders' campaign just this week who was secretly recorded saying, maybe you heard about it, saying uh, that anybody who stands in our way uh, is going to have to be re-educated. The purpose of free education is re-education camps. That's the point of it. 
See? So here everybody is saying, well, wouldn't it be great not to have a, a, a student loan, right? Yeah. But that's the hook. That's the bait on the hook. And the hook is, I want to be able to control what you learn. Right. If they're, the hook, the problem is, is that it's not free, right? The government's actually paying for it. And if they pay, well, that's true, too. Well, what I mean about that is that if they're pay, who pays for it actually gets to determine what to discuss. That's right, to discern what's going to be right. done. There's that little argument about, like, um, if you're paying for it and you're benefiting from it, you care about it. But if you're paying for it but somebody else is benefiting from it or, like, that, that type of thing. It's like who pays for it kind of actually – if the dad is buying the, you know, the – is paying for the reception and there's going to be, like, a – you know, a bar there, but he doesn't drink, but everyone else wants to, yeah. then he's probably going to, he gets, but he gets to determine what liquor's there. Yeah, right. Right? right. Not you, him, because he's paying for it, because the person who foots the bill decides. If the government is paying for your education and your health care, <laughs> and all, uh, paying for your education and your health care, then your government is determining what that education gets to be and what the health care gets to be. Right. And nobody puts those two things together. They just feel like it's just going to be a bunch of free money. It's going to be exactly like it is. Yes. You know, we That's get to the walk assumption. in and we're going to have all the options, only now it's all free. Right. When it's like, no, when yes, the person is paying for it, they're going to determine what your options actually are. That's right. And that's, you know. That's right. And mix into that the fact that the money that that person is going to be using to pay for your free education doesn't come from him. Yeah. It comes from the taxpayers. Not the right? Problem. So the taxpayers are paying so that you can go. To, to, to school, and so in the end, you're paying for it to a degree. You may not be paying for it today, but down the road, another 30 years, when you're making money, your money is going to go to pay for somebody else's education. That's how they see it. Same thing with health care. But the point is, the, if, the, if the fellow who's actually paying the bills for your education is not paying for it with... Is, well, let me say it this way. If the fellow that is paying for your education is paying for it out of his own pocket, he may still care a little bit about the quality of education that goes into your... If he cares about you, right. you know. Uh, but And also, maybe since he's paying for it, it matters to him a little bit about what he's getting for what he's paying for. Right. You get off because you're, you know, you're off the hook because you don't have to pay for it. But what if it's a government employee, not your dad? You know, what if your father that's paying for it? It's one thing. But if it's the government that's doing it, then the money is simply coming through his hands to the university. It's not coming from his pocket to the university. So not only does he not care about the quality of it uh, for your sake or even for his own sake, he doesn't care about the expense of it, how much it costs, because it's not his money anyway. He's not paying for it. But here's the rub. If he's an ideologue, if he's a true socialist ideologue, he cares about the content of the education. And he's perfectly happy to pay more money Maybe even out of his own pocket to a bit. He might even sacrifice a little uh, in terms of his own power or his own life or whatever in order to be able to get what he wants, which is brainwashing. That's what it is. He wants to be able to say, this is the kind of education you can have in the university, and this is not. And so if the government is paying for it, the government wants the education to be the way they want it to be. And then it's not free anymore. It's free in the sense that you're not paying for it, but it's not free in the sense that there's a, a, a myriad of ideas out there that are open to be discussed. Right. The options are set by the payer. That's right. That, That's yeah. right. And then the question of, like, well, what, it, what happens when people realize that and they're like, wait, we don't want that. And then they disagree and they dissent. Right. 
I mean, it's always the question that the radical, whether they be socialist or otherwise, has to deal with. I, I, I remember I presented that in a paper uh, in one of my grad school programs because they were kind of everybody in that class, which was a fun class, but everyone in that class was kind of drunk on sort of the radical, like, oh, wouldn't we just wouldn't it be great if we just built things the way we are? And so my final paper in the class was titled, "What are we supposed to do with these people?" <laughs> and it was all about like, what do you do in your radical egalitarian, everything's equal thing? What do you do with the people who? are not fat cats and they're not Nazis, they're just ordinary people who don't want to give up their property or they don't, yeah. they, or they don't want the education you're selling because they think it's incorrect. Yeah. What are you supposed to do with them? Yeah. And the systems that are being put forth now don't actually have an answer to that because they don't know how to deal with that. What if, you, what if you want to be able to choose your own doctor, your own medicine, your own health care? What if you don't want Bernie's version of what a proper education is? Exactly right. Right? What if, what if you don't want any of that? What are we supposed to do with these people? Yeah. Right? And the radical of today, it, you know, if they're nice and honest and still civil, has no answer. They think it's so pure and just good, so obviously good, that who, why would anyone dissent? Mm -hmm. It reminds me, again, of like uh, Roger Scruton, may he rest in peace, saying how the radical is always like starry-eyed and optimistic and full of vigor and stuff when they're up in their apartment, like writing their manifesto. Exactly. But as soon as they step down from their apartment down into the shop of the shopkeeper that they live below, and then they confront the shopkeeper who isn't really impressed with these weird ideas, suddenly they run into a problem, because, like, what am I supposed to do with them? Mm -hmm. And in the moment, they may not know, but in history, we know exactly what they do with them. You know, liquidation. It, at, at least, it starts off with, um, with shunning, yeah, social yeah. shunning. At least it's and then, then there's economic pressures, right? You're going to lose your, you're gonna lose your job. You can't work for us if you're going to have that attitude, you see. Right. Or, but eventually, it's imprisonment. Right. right, you have to say, well, we're going to make a law that says if you hold that position or do these certain things, you got to go to jail. And then eventually, if you're if you're still resisting, then it's lining you up and shooting you. That's the only way out, man. It's the only way out. I don't see any other way to go. Yeah. So, on the surface, it looks like. Go back to my first point. It seems to me the social the, the rise of the interest of socialism amongst especially the young people today, but in in our country today, is partly due, mainly due to the the, the utopian picture that they paint of the kind of world they want to have, mm. and that's very compelling even to people like me. I get why they would want to have. I mean, human beings are equal before God. Human beings are equal before the law. Who, why, why is it fair that one guy gets to have a yacht and the other one doesn't? Why is it fair that one guy has enough money to have a liver transplant and the other guy doesn't? Mm -hmm. It just seems wrong on that kind of superficial level. It's just not the way reality is, that's all. And so what they're doing is they're substituting this utopian picture of how things ought to be with the means that they're actually going to use to get there. And then they use the means, and the means turn out, first of all, not to work, but secondly, you can't stop. You've, you've got to continue on with the means until you get to the point that it does work, and it never does, and causes all sorts of pain and hassle. So uh, I think we better wrap up, though, yeah, yeah. Um, and I'd like to recommend Hayek's book here. I've just been looking again at The Road to Serfdom, and I think it's worth reading for everybody on both sides of the of the uh, of the political aisle, all both sides of any kind of economic aisle too. The questions that he raises are not easily dismissed. No, they're not. Um, I'm gonna because I mentioned him. I'm going to recommend 
uh, Roger Scruton mm -hmm. in general. Roger Scruton, British conservative philosopher, he died uh, just, just a couple week. of days ago. Yeah. Right, a couple of days ago. Big loss for the intellectual world, not just the conservative world. For me, it was one of the few times I could say, like, that a intellectual hero of mine mm -hmm. died. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't know if I had any of those. And then I found out he was dead, and I was like, oh, I do. <laughs> I first ran into Roger Scruton back in 2009. I didn't run into him, but I first <laughs> ran into him when back in 2009 I first started grad school, and I was going into literary theory class. I knew I was getting into because I kind of got a taste of it. But I wanted, like, I want to know how am I supposed to stay sane when I'm going through this stuff, and, like, what's a way to, like, think about it and there was a guy in another class who I was talking to this about, and this dude, I only met him once in this one class that one semester. I never saw him ever again. But he was this crazy Orthodox Catholic guy. Hmm. He, like, showed up to Ash Wednesday with, like, the cross and everything. Sure. And he told me, have you ever heard of Roger Scruton? And I was like, I think so. So I think I have. So you should check out his stuff. Hmm. And so I found this book of his called Modern Philosophy. Excellent book. Which is a great, very dense book. The second to last chapter, the penultimate chapter, is called The Devil. Mm -hmm. When I read that, and I have reread that thing multiple times. I just read it a few days ago in light of my dissertation, and I keep getting more and more out of it. It is mm -hmm. his takedown of the nihilism of the 20th century, including deconstruction and post-structuralism and all that stuff. Yeah. Sort of his concise takedown of it. And since then, I hit him up as much as I can. I've been reading more of his stuff lately. Uh, and it's just, you know, don't always agree with him. Sure. But for the most part, he has, like, been a source of sanity for me. Yeah, me too. So I recommend Roger Scruton. I don't know where you should start. Modern philosophy is dense. But he has books on, like, how to be conservative or the meaning of conservatism, mm -hmm. which are fun. They're good. It's, a, it's its own kind of thing. I got to know him first because he's also a musician. Yes. And uh, he wrote a very interesting, he's done some very interesting <laughs> books on uh, a analyzing music, but also about beauty in general, which is my pet field, uh, uh, aesthetics. And uh, short, the short little book that Scruton wrote yes. on beauty is excellent. Yeah, that, actually, that's what I recommend where people should start. It's, it's now, it's now called the Oxford uh, Very Short Introduction to Beauty. It became part of the Very Short Introduction series. But it's the Oxford Very Short Introduction to Beauty, and it's by him. That's a great way to start because you get sort of his vibe and his feels. Yeah. And beyond that, just find something to dig in because he always was saying incredible things. Very wise man in many ways. All right. Well, that's all the time we got for today. This has been From the Center, and we'll see you next time.